Welcome to the Sandbox. Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Dave. Just a couple weeks ago, we invited author Jacqueline Bussey to join us on a live event stage. We had a great evening. Yeah, it was so much fun. And it's always great when we can have a lot of you as listeners come and join us live and in person. We have a bunch of people watching online and just to see what happens when we all can connect and then also get to interact with with the uh, the author, with Jacqueline. Absolutely. So this is our 11th live event. If you missed it, uh, good news. In a couple minutes here, we're going to share some of that with you. Um, but again, we love uh, having these conversations conversations and sharing them with you uh, for all years to come. Um, if you're looking for maybe one of our previous live events, uh, you can find those on our website, just like the podcast. So just go to sandboxcooperative.com, click the live events tab. You find all sorts of videos from our events. People like Science Mike McCarg, um, Becca Stevens, who is the CNN person of the year runner up a couple of years ago. Uh, Shane Claiborne, whose name that a lot of you may be familiar with. Uh, lots of others, great conversations uh, and great ways to, to engage with some of this, this content and what they have to share. And one of the things I love about it is these discussion guides. Yeah. And so we can, you can meet with your small group. Maybe you have a class that you're teaching, a group of friends, whatever. You can watch these videos. We'll give you the questions for just to get the conversation started and see where it leads. It's a free resource that we give out, and it's a way to keep these keep these conversations alive and, and, and moving uh, long after uh, we're done with these events. Absolutely. A lot of times there's just conversations that are hard to have. And, and that's kind of one of the things we hope we can do with these is spark some conversation uh, in a way that's, that's healthy and, and helps us learn from each other. Uh, yeah, for sure. But for today, this is the audio recording of our live event that we did with Dr. Jacqueline Bussey. She's the author of Love Without Limits, Jesus' Radical Vision for Love with No Exceptions. Just as a note, uh, toward the end of her talk, Jacqueline references an image that you can't see because why? Because this is an audio recording, Uh, but it's it's an image of her with a piece of duct tape over her mouth and scrawled across that duct tape is the word censored. Just wanted you to think about that image as we we get started. So with that, welcome to Sandbox Live with Dr. Jacqueline Bussey. It's my honor to be able to introduce uh, Dr. Jacqueline Bussey. She's an award-winning author, professor, theologian, and, and public speaker. Dr. Bussey is the director of the Forum on Faith and Life at Concordia, Moorhead, or Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota, where she teaches religion, theology, and uh, interfaith studies. Jacqueline is also the author of several books, most recently this one, Love Without Limits, Jesus' Radical Vision for Love with No Exceptions. It was just released uh, this past August. In her free time, uh, Jacqueline loves to read books, ride in the front cars of roller coasters, uh, take ballroom dance lessons with her husband, travel, go for long walks, laugh, the band, Bon Ivar, the smell of honeysuckle on a hot day. I don't even know what honeysuckle smells like, but that sounds fantastic. Uh, she and her. Uh, she also loves her husband's uh, fajitas. Jacqueline hails from Florida. She now lives in Fargo, North Dakota, <laughs> which is all the proof she needs that God has a wicked sense of humor. <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Jacqueline Bussey. Uh, 
Okay, well thank you so much Dave for that wonderful introduction and thank you to the Sandbox Cooperative for having me out tonight and most of all thanks to those listening and thank you to you beautiful humans who gave up your Sunday night to be here. So it means a lot to me. So I look forward to the conversation that we're going to have together so be thinking of questions you want to talk to me about. My book has a very interesting backstory. It's a backstory from censorship uh, to redemption. So I look forward to talking to you about that. But rather than me just telling you what the book is about, I thought that I would do a reading, if that's okay, with everyone. Do a short reading of the very first chapter of the book, which is about my first love. Do you remember your first love? What it taught you? Mine was my very first lesson in a love without limits, and I was never the same. My first love was Gus Tate, whose swing set loosely separated my unfenced backyard from his in Peachtree City, Georgia. I was six years old. Gus was four. I was a girl. He was a boy. I was Lutheran. He was Catholic. I went to school. Gus stayed home. On the block, the kids teased, ew, he's too little to play with. And at church, they said, ew, his church is bad and teaches the wrong stuff. And for these silly reasons, everyone said Gus and I couldn't be best friends. But thankfully, we never let that stop us. Gus and I spent hours together every day. Our shared love for SpaghettiOs, playing outside, and the book Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, drowning out all the voices that tried to keep us apart. Gus's dad worked for a big company in Atlanta. He always left the house early, so we didn't see him much, just like my dad. And Gus's mom, Margaret, was as sweet as could be. And just like my mom, she fed us cut-up apple slices and Kool-Aid, but always with less sugar added than the back of that packet recommended. <laughs> and unlike the rest of the world, Gus and I realized how much we had in common, which made our love as shatterproof as our sippy cups. Gus and I turned up our noses at store-bought games like Tiddlywinks or Cootie, in favor of our own invented game called Imagination, our favorite version of which we called Magic Carpet. The game required only a fuzzy blue bath mat and an old little tube, which although it said crest on it, actually should have said magic, duh, grown-ups. <laughs> and to play, Gus and I sat on the little carpet, and I unscrewed the cap off the tube. Next, we held hands and wished as hard as we could for liftoff. And once airborne, eyes closed, we imagined our way across the world. Look, that's the roof of our house down there. And this must be what Mary Poppins feels like. I swear sometimes that bath mat really did lift a few inches off the linoleum. And when the carpet grew tired, or more likely when Margaret said it was time for supper, 
We opened our eyes and landed. The tube always went back home with me in my pocket, but only until the next time Gus begged me to uncap it, and there was always a next time. And one sad day, I lost the tube. But to our delight, Gus and I found it made no difference. The only magic we needed to fly was each other. Once in the woods behind our backyards, we discovered a huge fire ant pile. And Margaret told us the true story of a toddler who stepped into a pile of Georgia fire ants and died of allergic shock. The story frightened me. But it also filled me with a sense of big girl responsibility. I knew I had to protect Gus from the scary piles of red dirt because underneath them lurked a thousand sneaky ants that could sting the life out of him in a second. Time with Gus taught me that you have to look out for everyone who is littler than yourself and that protecting people from things that sting is what love looks like. Even though I was only a little kid, Margaret loved and trusted me, and somehow I knew this. I see now that I was, in some ways, a helpful babysitter to her during a tough time in her life. But that doesn't change a thing about my gratitude. Gus was kind and sweet, and he let me teach him stuff that he didn't know how to do, like read books, tie his shoes, and brush his teeth. In my own family, I was the littlest, which felt like the stupidest. But with Gus, I felt smart and special. Gus was the first person in my life who made me feel like a someone, like the teacher I would one day become. And on what went down in my personal history as the worst day of my childhood, all of this goodness came to a wailing halt. And a few weeks before my seventh birthday, Gus and Margaret moved to Kansas. Now, I had no idea where Kansas was, but like every little kid, I had watched The Wizard of Oz, so I knew Kansas was a nightmarish place, far from your family and filled with cyclones and mean green witches, flying monkeys. I could not for the life of me understand why Gus had to go there. So I asked my mom and she said that Gus was moving because his parents had gotten a divorce. Now I had no idea what divorce was but because it meant that Gus was leaving town forever and I could no longer walk out my back door and see his face. I rightly understood the D word to stand for separation tears, and never again being able to play on the swing set with the boy I loved. The day Gus left town, I stared out my window at the moving van. I cried the entire day. I couldn't stop. This continued for days. No one in my family paid me any attention. They all thought I would get over it. And in one way, they were right, of course. But in another way, 
They were dead wrong, as evidenced by the fact that I'm still standing here talking about him decades later. A month or so after Gus moved, I wrote him a letter on my yellow-lined monogrammed stationery, which he'd sent me for my seventh birthday. And I wrote, I miss you so much, Gus. I will never smile again. I was a very dramatic kid. <laughs> this was overly dramatic, I know. But today, I'm struck by how much this reaction foretold about my life and revealed who I really am deep down. You know, grief has always stung my soul like a thousand Georgia fire ants swarming my skin. It has always left me shocked, gasping for air, and terrified of dying all alone in the woods. Now, I could lie to you and swear that one day I outgrew this allergic reaction to absence. But honestly, I never did. Like all grown-ups, I just learned how to hide it. Now, as you might imagine, my letter troubled Margaret. She and Gus wrote me back. Well, Gus couldn't write yet, so she had to speak for him. Jackie, she penned. Gus was so sad to hear you say you'll never smile again. He wants you to play and be happy. He wants you to know he will never forget you. And I still have this letter. I have kept it for 40 years. I just realized I should have brought it tonight. That would have been a great prop to show. I really have it. I'm not kidding. But I never saw Gus Tate again. But for the next 20 years, we wrote letters. Each year, I sent him my school picture with my red-headed curly hair and my pale, freckled face, smiling at him from across the miles, proof that I'd broken my grim promise. And Gus sent me drawings, valentines, a notice of his first communion, school pictures. I grew up with pictures of Gus all around me, on my bedroom desk. And I was told Gus grew up with pictures of me on his fridge. I always felt better when I heard this. Because my greatest fear was that Gus would forget me. And the saddest thing I could imagine was standing in my backyard all alone, the only one left holding the memory of how marvelous it felt to make liftoff. as sometimes happens with time. The letters trickled to a slow drip, then stopped altogether. The very last thing Gus ever sent me in the early 90s was his wedding photo. Gus stood outside on the grass in front of some lush green trees and he wore a tuxedo, and I was struck by how much he looked like his dad. However, what took my breath away in the photo was not Gus's face but the face of his bride. She had red, curly hair and freckles all over her pale skin. And looking at the face of Gus Tate's wife felt like looking in a mirror. 
She looked more like me than my own sister. Even my mother said so. Gus Tate is the person who taught me that real love never forgets, even if it has to move to canvas and you never ever see it again. Gus Tate is the person who taught me that real love hurts you, but it can also heal you. Our first love teaches you the power of certain things, magic, flight, stings, separation, words. And if you're one of the lucky ones, you'll never forget its lessons. I am lucky. I never forgot. At age six, I could never have known how divided our world and even our own nation and neighborhoods would one day become, how sad and severed. I could never have imagined the countless times I would hear someone say or act as if certain groups of thems or certain kinds of theys must never be loved or befriended because they are too different. I could never have foreseen how many times my heart would return to the memory of my minutes with little Gus Tate and how because of him and our magic to this day I distrust voices that claim it's wrong or dangerous or unfaithful to love someone because they are not one of us. I could never have fathomed the gratitude my grown-up self would still carry today for my childhood friend. For Gus Tate was the one who taught me to tear down the foolish fences this world tries to construct in our backyards. He was the one who taught me, sure, differences and distance, they matter. But everyone, yes, everyone wants to fly. This is a book about love's legacy. About the likely and unlikely people, places, and things that have in my years on earth showed me how to love with a radical love. Always be ready to give an accounting of the hope that is within you. 1 Peter 3.15 this book is my heart on the page, giving you an accounting of the love that lives within me. This is a book about love, love without limits, about the kind of outlandish love that outfoxes death, difference, and distance, about all the people and places and things that you're taught not to love, and why loving them anyway might just save your life as well as stop the madness that currently passes for our daily news headlines. This is a book about a love so strong-legged its leap crosses canyons. About a love so long-armed its embrace makes room for you and for all your hidden grief too. It's about a challenge to widen love's wingspan or die trying. This is not a book about the tiny love fear teaches us to follow, fit for ants. 
about the Goliath love God begs us to borrow fit for giants. It's about the radical love to which we are called and the surprising places it will take us if we are just brave enough to believe and hold hands. Thank you. Well, thanks, Jacqueline, for sharing the first chapter of your book. Thank you. And Thank you. You know, we've had some conversations kind of leading up to this, and you describe this book as, as, as being a book with a, with a story, with a, with a background. Could, could yeah. you share about that? I can. Yeah, it's actually kind of an unfortunate backstory, but it has a great ending, as okay. you can tell by the fact the book exists. So basically what happened was this was a book that was written entirely during the election year. So I was in contract to write this book for a major Christian publishing house. And I won't name them, but I'm sure it's one that you have definitely heard of. And I you know, gave a full proposal what I was going to be doing, and they signed off on it. They loved it, and they gave the book this title. That's important for later for this story. So the subtitle is Jesus' Radical Vision for Love with No Exceptions. Um, and basically what happened is I was asked to make exceptions. So I wrote the whole book and submitted it, and my editor loved it. He, he said, oh, we love it, it's great, and there's just something we need to talk to you about on the phone. And foolishly, I was like, oh, okay, well, no problem. It seems like they liked it so much, you know, I wasn't worried. And I got on the phone, and I'm gonna quote exactly what he said to me. He said, well, there's just, you know, some of the stories you're telling, they're just not in line with the values of the majority. And I was like, well, you know, okay, well, which stories? And also, I'm not sure that I care, right? You know, because these are, <laughs> you know, this is a memoir about love across difference, and it comes from my own life and those, you know, wonderful people who have allowed me to be a steward and share their stories in the book and given me permission to do that. And so I was like, okay, well, what are you talking, like what? You know, and he goes, and I'm quoting, uh, he said, it's the gays and the Muslims. And I said, what? And instantly my hands were, sh were shaking, you know, and I was like, what about them, <laughs> you know? And he was like, well, he just kept repeating that line about what some of the stories you're telling aren't in line with the values of the majority. And he uh, said, well, I said, well, I don't understand, you know, like, which stories are you talking about? I, I don't understand this. And then he said, well, we have um, taken the liberty of rewriting it, so we'll send it to you. And just so you know, like, that's not how editing books goes, right? I mean, of course you know that, right? But the way it works, and it and has always worked with all, I, this is my third book, you know, is that you, you, it's a back and forth, it's a dialogue, you know, they write in the track changes in the document, like, hey, you need to work on this part, it needs more strengthening, you know, and then you do it. People don't rewrite that for you without even doing track changes, and that's what they did. And they sent it to me. And that's when I knew uh, that it was over. And I should just preface this too by saying that I had taken a year off of my work at Concordia in order to write the book for this publisher. So I was not working. Um, I was working for this publisher and they had paid me a large advance to write the book. So it's more complicated than it seems, you know, when money changes hands, you know. And so they took the liberty of rewriting it and I, they sent it to me, and I was just terrified. And I, the phone call did not go well. You know, I kept trying to say to them, you know, uh, 
I, I, you know, I was like, I, I will, I'll look at what you wrote, but, I, but I'm worried about it. I, I don't expect that it's going to go well. And I was trying to make an argument with them that, that I'm a teacher and that my identity as a teacher really matters to me. And my editor at the time actually was a teacher of writing, you know. And so I tried to appeal to that with him and I said, you know, uh, if your writing students came to you on the first day of class and they wrote a certain way, and 16 weeks later, they wrote exactly the same way. And you'd given them no new information, no new challenges, no new perspectives. You hadn't opened any worlds of writing to them. Would you consider yourself a failure? I said, because that's the way I feel about my book. And, and you know, even if people don't agree with it, I want this perspective to be out there. I want people to be introduced to a new idea. And that's what I would want for, for my students. And so part of this is, is wrapped up in this. I have a whole chapter on some of my Muslim friends. And I use that as an on-ramp to not only introduce readers to them because they're beautiful human beings, but also to teach a few things about Islam that maybe we all don't know, right? That goes beyond the media sound bites, which is all we have these days. And so... Back to the tale of woe. <laughs> so I open up my laptop, they've sent the document, and I take one look at it and start sobbing, like wailing. My husband comes running up the stairs, he's like, what is it, what is it? And I push the laptop over to him and I say these words. I said, you know, honey, there's only one choice. Which meant that I was gonna have to quit, you know back out of my own contract. And the reason for that was, what they had done was I had, I had a chapter in which I was um, talking about some of my LGBTQ friends and some beautiful things that they had taught me about love. And then I had a chapter about my Muslim friends. Like I said, the cuts were so intense. It was almost 4,000 words. It's a short book. That's a lot. That's almost a whole chapter. The cuts were so intense that what the editor did, the publisher, combined those two chapters that were named after my friends, had the names of human beings, of people that I love, right? One was called Elijah, and then one had the names of three Muslim friends. But they cut so much from the chapters that no, the chapters couldn't stand up, right, as a whole chapter. So they combined them into one, which makes no sense, right, you know? And they couldn't call it after the names anymore, so they entitled the chapter in all capital letters. Are you ready? I'm glad you're sitting down. <laughs> I hope at home you're sitting down too. They said, they called it Others. And my heart just broke, you know, because I was like, the whole point of writing the book is so that we stop seeing beloved children of God as others. And that's why I cried, and that's why I pushed the laptop to my husband, and I said, you know, there's only one choice, and it's, it's proof that he's an amazing um, spouse, because he said, he took one look at it, just that one line, that new title of the chapter, and he's like, yeah, there's only one choice. So. Mm -hmm. And then what? <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I'm like, I know, exactly. So this is, where, this is where I get in a lot of trouble, right? Because I told, you know, I said, um, I said to my agent, I said, you have to, you have to tell them that I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And you can also tell them 
one of my favorite quotes from the philosopher Cornel West. I don't know if you know him, but he came to MSUM, and my students and I from Concordia, we walked over and we listened to him. And we were completely inspired. And one of the things that we all like, gave him a standing ovation for was he said this sentence. He said, what the world needs more of are people who are not for sale. And I had quoted that, and my students were like, I love that quote, you know, and then it's, it's interesting, you know, watch out what you love, because someday the universe might test you on it, because that's what happened to me. And so I said, you tell them, tell my publisher that uh, Cornel West said, <laughs> what the world needs more of is people who aren't for sale, and you tell them I'm one of them. Mm. And so then, of course, they said, well, okay, well, that's just fine. You don't have to make the changes. You know, they were like, you can still make the changes and we'll publish the book, which they really wanted to do. And then they, you know, but they said, if you refuse, which you're refusing, they said, that's fine. Then Jacqueline owes us back her entire annual salary that we paid her for the last year. Because we own the rights to the book because we paid her to write it. Now, imagine if you worked for a year Nobody told you you did a bad job. In fact, I'd sent chapters to the publisher. They had read them. They weren't, maybe those controversial ones, because those mm -hmm. were done towards the end, but they had read them. I mean, imagine if you worked for a year, and then at the end, your boss was like, you know, I've been thinking about it, and I changed my mind about what I wanted, and so now you have to give me your annual salary back. Like, it may be legal, but I was like, this is completely unethical. You agreed to this book. And we pushed them on that. And then they sent us an email in which the vice president uh, said, well, the landscape is very different now. I don't know what that means exactly, but we could think about it because <laughs> we could think about it together in, in theory, right? Because the, the book was approved, you know, in the fall of, the, of 2016, which is all an election year, and by, it was due to the publisher on April 30th of 2017. I got it in a few days early. Um, but in that span of time, what we had agreed to was no longer acceptable. And again, you know, you can't force a publisher to publish something they don't want to publish, but you also can't force me. I'm protected by the law as well. You know, as an author, I, you can't put my name on a book that I'm saying you can't publish that version of it. So we're both mutually protected, but um, we didn't have the money. I mean, I don't know about you, but what you do with an annual salary is you live off of it. Mm -hmm. My husband's a freelancer, you know? We lived off that money and they knew I wouldn't have it. So I lost the book. I lost the rights to the book. I could have, I mean, I don't think Concordia would do this, but you know, I could be in a lot of trouble for Concordia. Part of when you go on a sabbatical as a professor is you need to produce something that is a reflection you know, of my office. I direct a forum on faith and life. I write on faith and life. You don't just go on a vacation for a year from your job, right? So I would, could be in a lot of trouble with Concordia for not having the book come out, and I sank into a depression. I got really, really depressed because they were very shaming in my perception. Um, they tried shaming, they tried silencing, they tried what I call seduction. You know, my publisher was like, it's okay, Jacqueline, that you have these views. You know, it's okay, and you can like just publish those somewhere else, like your blog, but not in your books. Listen to that, right? Mm -hmm. And then, then I get to keep the money, right? Wow, the things that you're asked to do, right, to compromise your integrity. 
So obviously I didn't do any of that. They must not have been aware of the title of the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm still left wondering about that. I was like, do you not see the irony of the no exceptions? Yeah. 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 They yeah. asked me to make exceptions. Wow. And so you you, you pull out of that and, and, and you and your husband you make this decision. Yeah. And you have you don't have the money to pay back, nope. you're experiencing a depression. Mm -hmm. um, and yet I'm s sitting here with you and there's a book sitting here. How, how did that come to be? Yeah. This is the best part. <laughs> you're totally gonna love this because it's like love wins. <sighs> so wins. So I, it was Memorial Day weekend when we told them that I would not make the changes and we were done. And they fired me, well it was four days before the Saturday of Memorial Day weekend. And they fired me on Memorial Day weekend. Like the vice president actually wrote us on a holiday weekend to be like, she's out. And so I was like, we expected that, of course, but it was still really depressing. So, like I said, I kind of, I lost myself a little bit because of course these were friends, these are friends, you know, the stories that I had told. They're sacred stories. You know, if somebody allows you to share their story, in such a public way, you become a steward of that. And it, to me, that's a sacred obligation. And, ah, so do you think I could go back to my friends and be like, oh hey, I lost my book contract because I, I felt like I couldn't even mm -hmm. tell them. I felt like I, I've just kind of hunkered down into this. I don't know who I can talk to about this. So I told very few people. But, but in about two months passed, and there's all kinds of like, sad stories you know I went walking one day in a cemetery because I felt like I just I gave birth to death that's what it felt mm -hmm. like you know mm -hmm. to put your whole being into writing my whole heart is in this book like it's my whole life it's my celebration of love across difference and to have it stomped on like that was just ah. Oh. so not to say nothing of just what I perceive as the 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 bigotry, right, and the bias behind it, which of course has nothing, has very little to do with the book, right? So it's really much bigger. Like, you know, my, my depression was not just about the book, just to be clear, or myself or money, for heaven's sake. It's about my naivete was destroyed, like my innocence. Like I learned that this is how books get printed and that they, it, the, every expectation is that you'll just change it. And this is how single stories get told about whole groups of people in the world and how heartbreaking that is. And this is how stereotypes live on and on and on. Okay, so back to what happened. Sorry. <laughs> I just talked for a long time. I promise I'll keep it short. So here's the beautiful thing that happened. So one day, I was talking to this dear friend of mine. And she's just a beautiful person. And you know how sometimes one person will say something to you and after all the things that didn't get through that one thing just like pierces right through to your heart she did that this is what she said it was uh, July 21st so I lost the contract Memorial Day she said you know Jacqueline they just want you to shut up and disappear and you have given them exactly what they wanted now who can say what they wanted? I don't want to speculate about that. But what I can tell you is that is exactly what I did. And that made me realize the feisty part of myself kicked in. You know, the feisty southerner in me was like, what? I gave these people exactly what they wanted? That's not okay. So I walked home 
I walked home. This is where we have the props, right? Yeah, okay. So I walked home and I said to my husband, where's the duct tape? And he, he was like, it's right here. <laughs> Why do you want the duct tape, honey? It was like really scaring him. And I, and I took out a black Sharpie and I wrote censored across the tape. And then I um, took this selfie, which is me like looking really bad because I was feeling actually really, really bad and hadn't slept for like weeks. So anyway, this is, this is the picture that I took and I decided that I was gonna sit down and along with this picture, I was going to write a Facebook post just for once and for all to tell my friends what had happened so I didn't have to keep retelling it and crying, you know. So I just wrote a little piece. I did not name my publisher. I'm not interested in demonizing them. Not interested in that. My love without limits extends even to them. So, but, but I did like come to this uncanny conclusion at the end when I was writing it. This is going to sound so silly, because I'm sure you're thinking like, you know, they didn't take everything, Jacqueline. At the time, it felt like that to me. But the writing, writing for me is prayer. So the writing helped me to recover, of course, as I got to the end, the one thing that they did not take, of course, was my love. They didn't take it. There would be no controversy if they had taken it. And so I just wrote this little piece, and at the end, the last sentence that came out as I was writing was, you know, Okay, people in power, huff and puff, you know, till what is true will turn your face blue. And then I wrote, love's not a candle, it's the freaking sun. Like, you can't blow it out. Good luck trying. And then I posted that on Facebook with this picture, right? And then I went to bed because I was like, oh, it just felt so good to tell it. And I was so tired. It was middle of the day. And uh, so I went to sleep. But right before I went to sleep, somebody said, will you make this post public so that I could share it? And I'm like, sure, whatever, right? You know, you know where this is headed, right? And so while I'm resting, <laughs> the post um, goes viral. And people that I did not even know started tagging the CEOs of other publishing houses. And this amazing woman in California, I hope she's listening. I've never met her yet, but I can't wait to meet her. I have a speaking gig in California. I'm going to get to meet her. But she tagged the CEO of Fortress Press, which is, you know, just down the road in Minneapolis. And she tagged the CEO, and the CEO, like, tried to contact me, but, you know, like, we're not friends on Facebook, so her message went into some weird file, and I didn't, did not receive that at the time. But this is amazing. That very same day that I posted that, this is just uncanny. The senior acquisitions editor of that same press, of Fortress Press, was a thousand miles from his house. And he was seated just like this, like on a stage at a writer's conference. And it was like about how to publish, how to do Christian publishing, you know, because he's an editor. And he was seated right next to all other authors and an agent. And my face appears on his phone while they're on a break, you know, with this picture. And he's like, Jacqueline Bussey, wow, I wonder who her agent is. So he turns to the agent that he's sitting next to. And he's like, do you know her? Like, do you know who Jacqueline Bussey's agent is? And it was my agent. <laughs> Right? Like, right? So crazy. So beautiful. So, it's like mind-blowingly beautiful. And my agent was like, what is that picture? <laughs> and what has she done now? <laughs> you know? But then, he, everything's digital these days. He just, right then and there, you know, he, you know, they said, do you have a book for sale? And he's like, well, we don't have it, but this other press has it if you wanted to help us buy it back. And so he sends it to him. It's, the, the post had only been out for two hours before it reached him. 
And in by 24 hours, like the next day by one o'clock, they had made an offer to help me buy it back. Yeah, a generous offer, not the whole amount. We still lost a lot of money, my husband and I, but I like to say that's an integrity tax. That's a good reminder that integrity will cost us and I am totally okay with that debt. So that's how the book exists now and thanks to, to my new publisher. Wow. wow. For that, yeah. I don't know that there are a lot of books that have that <laughs> intense of a story. That's, that's I know, incredible. Right? That's incredible. Exactly. Man, I loved Jacqueline's presentation, and man, we were just getting warmed up. Yeah, we really were. There was a lot of great conversation following. Uh, we'll share that in, a, in an episode here uh, as a bonus episode, but um, it's a really important topic, and so that's, I think, mm -hmm. why this conversation went, uh, went as long as it did that evening. Just uh, we really need to learn how to, I think really love and care for one another and yet be able to disagree. Absolutely. I think it's one of the biggest things we could learn right now. You know, and the, and the crowd in-house was, was so quiet and just so attentive during the whole thing, but afterwards they wouldn't leave. I mean, everybody just <laughs> hung out and had so much yep. to, to talk about because, yeah. because the topic was just that uh, important for us to, to interact with. So Absolutely. So with that, thanks for listening to the audio recording of our Sandbox Live event with Jacqueline Bussey. If you want to hear a little bit more from Jacqueline, again, check out that bonus episode, uh, Jacqueline Bussey Q&A. And it's a recording of the conversation that we had with Jacqueline following her presentation. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the Sandbox.